Well, that was quite a ride yesterday. Um, I texted my wife and I told her, now she, look at, I'm, I got teenagers. I got an 18 year old and a 15 year old. And I know what you're thinking. That's really weird. Because he's an old guy, right? You know? And um, how did that happen, right? I don't remember. But <laughs> I need prayer. And that, like, that's not my slice of ministry, the youth group, you know? So I told my wife, we're traveling for three hours, you know, in the van, 10 folks from the youth group, you know? And uh, she said, I'll pray for you. That's what she said that back. Then I said, if it gets really crazy, I'll just take my hearing aids out, you know. I, uh, we had a great conference, by the way, and I do a lot of these conferences. Eden had mentioned it. And uh, this is a place where really smart people get together and talk about things they've learned to pass on to the body of Christ to help them deal with challenges in the world. And I will tell you something. We have a deep bench, and I'm not talking about stand to reason. We do, but I'm talking about the body of Christ because there is not an issue that has come up a challenge that you will face that some smart person in the body of Christ has not done a deep dive on and come up with really good answers for. So we got, but there's a problem with that when you have conferences like this. It's like the guy in the far side cartoon, you know, he's in the math class and there's all the formulas on the board and he raises his hand and he said, Professor, could I please be excused? My brain is full, right? You ever felt that? You go to some of these conferences. And, um, and, but there's another difficulty too. You get all this information then you don't know what to do with it. How do you get that into conversation? It, especially in a way that looks more like diplomacy than D-Day, right? And so uh, there's a missing bridge, a bridge from the content to the conversation or a bridge from the scholarship to the relationship, okay? That's what I want to provide for you this morning. Now, I'm just going to touch base, give some basics here, and it's going to be a teaser for this afternoon. So I'm going to move through some material fairly quickly, give you some tools. But I hope you come back at 2.30, I think it is, and we got another couple of hours. I'll go deeper into the material. I'll give you some more tools. We'll have some time for Q&A and interaction. But I want to give you a base foundation of how to navigate this crazy world that as followers of Christ we fall, uh, we find ourselves in. And for you folk in Asheville, it's crazier than most, right? Now, I'm from Southern California, so I get it, right? But um, it's a real challenge no matter where you live in the culture, where you live in the country, if you're a follower of Jesus. So I want to give you a, a kind of a perspective and some tools to help you engage. However, it's going to require, to do this most effectively, it's going to require a, a, a kind of change or a shift in probably the way you approach the whole issue of evangelism. Now, I became a Christian in 1973 in Southern California during the Jesus Movement. And some people say, uh, well, did you see the movie, The Revolution, The Jesus Revolution? I said, I lived it, man. I was there. In fact, Calvary Chapel was the very first church that I walked into two weeks after I became a follower of Christ, okay? But back then, of course, lots of stuff was happening. It was, in a certain sense, it was kind of easy to talk to people about Christ because you just give the simple gospel. You got all these tracks. You got this little four-step process. At the end, you got the prayer, pray to receive Christ, and a whole lot of people did. And the Holy Spirit was moving in a very unique way, too. That kind of helped out a lot. But um, that was then, and this is now. 
Now, the simple gospel is no longer simple. I mean, the gospel is still the gospel, but people don't understand it now the way... The culture doesn't understand it now the way it did then. We'd say those words, and people would get it. They had a context, whatever. They didn't always believe it. They didn't always follow it, but at least they understood it. It wasn't a, host, a, a, a culture that was hostile to Christianity. Now, it's different. Now, you give the simple gospel, and this is understood by some people as hate speech... And not only that, there's a whole lot of challenges that people have that get in the way of even getting to that. They think the smart people have weighed in and found Christianity wanting, so they're not even interested in listening to you because it requires, they kind of still understand that if you're going to follow Jesus, that means you don't follow yourself. That means you've got to give up a whole bunch of stuff that God's not interested in you living like. And they don't want that because the 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 battle cry of the age right now is you do you. And that started in the 60s. Remember, do your own thing, feels good, do it, you know, that kind of stuff. Live for today, all of that back then. Well, now it's come to roost. The prophet said, you sow to the wind and you reap the whirlwind. So the gospel's not simple anymore. You've got all these new challenges, some things that just came up in the last five years I never expected we'd see. And also, if I gave you a, uh, if I told you I was going to give you a, a technique or a game plan or some tools to help you get to the close, get to that last page where you can close the deal and get that person to sign on the dotted line and pray to receive Christ. Oh, you'd take notes and praise the Lord or whatever, but you wouldn't do it. And the reason you wouldn't do it is because that, that's scary, especially in the context of the culture right now. That's fighting words for a lot of folks, Right? And so you're just going to sit on the bench. And by the way, I'm very sympathetic. I get it. I know what it's like out there. Okay? And so there is, there's a problem with the way we've been doing things, in my view. And I want you to reconsider this a little bit. Okay? Our, our, our techniques have not kept pace with the current culture. Now, I'm not suggesting the gospel changes. The gospel does not change. But the way we communicate the gospel needs to change. And I want you to think about something Jesus said in the parable of the sword. You're familiar with this. Four types of ground, scatters the seed, different things are happening. First kind of ground is really hard, right? The seed bounces off, the birds come and take it away. Well, Jesus goes and explains that later. And uh, I'm giving you an account here from Matthew chapter 13. And he tells what that first ground is like. And I'll tell you something. In this passage, what I'm going to read to you is a phrase in here that I had read many times before, and it never registered with me the way it does now. But it changes everything. Here's what Jesus said about the first ground. He said, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom, watch this, and does not understand it. When anyone heard, hears the words of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. So this isn't bouncing off hard heads. This is getting in there. They don't get it. They don't understand it. And if they don't understand what we're telling them, the devil takes it. And then Jesus talks about the other two grounds, but we get to the last one, and we see the phrase in another form show up again. Because the ground that works, that, that bears fruit, he says, of that ground, the one on whom the seed was sown on the good soil, this is the man who hears and understands. 
and bears fruit 30, 60, 100 fold. If we're talking to this culture in a way that they don't get it, they don't understand it, how are they going to believe it? They can't respond positively to something they don't understand. And I think as us and Christians, we have just been making the same religious noise for 50 years. And now it's completely incoherent to the culture. So I'm going to say something. Actually, I'm going to tell you two things that are kind of rock your boat a little bit. Here's the first thing. Whenever I get in a conversation with somebody, I, I hope will have a spiritual impact in their lives. I never have it as a goal to lead that person to Christ. In fact, I don't even have it as a goal to get to the gospel. Not in that conversation, necessarily. Now, do I want that person to become a Christian? Absolutely. Do you need the gospel? Sure. It's the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. But we've got all these obstacles that I just mentioned. I have a different framework, a different approach to that, taking into mind the kinds of things that I just talked to you about the parable of the sower. But it gets worse. Fasten your seatbelts. I have not prayed with someone to receive Christ in over 30 years. What a loser! But I tell you what, I have never been more effective for the cause of the gospel in Jesus Christ than I have been for the last 30 years because there has been a principle that I actually kind of picked up from a particular passage in Scripture that I see everywhere now that has transformed my approach. And I'm going to give you a little aphorism. An aphorism is like a pithy saying that's fairly easy to remember. Jesus taught in aphorisms. Render under Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God, the things that are God's. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and he loses his soul? Say, that's memorable, right? It's good. That's an aphorism. Okay, here, I'm going to give you one. Here it is. Write this down if you're taking notes. I hope you're taking notes. Nobody's moving. So nobody's taking notes. I know the students from last night. There, there they go. Rock and roll. Here it is. Before there can be any harvest... Before there can be any harvest, there's got to be a season of, let's just call it gardening. Before there can be a harvest, there's got to be a season of gardening. Oh, no duh. If you're a gardener, if you're agriculture, yeah. Spiritually speaking, same thing. And I want you to think about something Jesus said in John 4. Now, that's the woman at the well. Very famous passage. A lot of preaching done on that conversation. Lots to learn from the conversation. I want to talk about what happens after that conversation. Because she goes off to Sychar to tell the people about this man who told her everything she's ever done. Maybe he's the Messiah. The disciples come up to Jesus now. And Jesus says to them, you say there are four months and then comes the harvest? I say to you, look on the fields. They are white with harvest. Now, I don't think Jesus is saying every field is always white with harvest. This is not true. But Sychar was ready, and he knew that. And then he tells the disciples, watch this, you are about to reap where you did not sow. You are about to harvest where you did not garden. Now in that statement, there's a couple of things embedded there that I want you to get, very important. And by the way, when I, this sunk into me, it totally transformed the way I approach the whole project that we usually call evangelism. 
First thing he says, there's one field. In that case, it was Sychar. But there are two seasons. There's a sowing season and a reaping season. There's a gardening season and there's a harvesting season. All right? And also, there is one team. And the team is the body of Christ, the disciples of Jesus, the followers of Jesus. But there are two types of workers. There are sowers and there are reapers. There are gardeners and there are harvesters. And he was telling the disciples that this is the time for the harvest. You guys are going to get the easy picking. Somebody else did the hard work. And you get to get do the fun stuff, the easy stuff. And as I looked over my life and reflected on how God had worked in my life, I realized I'm not a harvester. I'm a gardener. The things that I do, the public speaking that I do, the books that I write, the radio shows, all of that stuff, what am I doing? I'm gardening, I'm gardening, I'm gardening. I want to tell you something about gardening and harvesting. I became a Christian in 1973, <clears throat> September 28th. They're coming up with my 50-year anniversary, all right? My younger brother had done most of the gardening in my life. <clears throat> but that night, he came to visit me in my apartment in West L.A. I was a student at UCLA at the time. And he began to talk to me more about Jesus. And I said, Mark, you don't have to tell, tell me any more about Jesus. I've already decided I want to become a Christian. It took, him, took me about 15 minutes to peel him off the ceiling. And then I prayed, and I began to follow Jesus. I want you to notice something about what happened that night. Mark didn't have to do anything. <clears throat> when the fruit is ripe, it falls into the bucket. When the fruit is ripe, it falls into the bucket. I want to ask you a question. How many altar calls are there in the book of Acts? None. How many times are people to, it, challenged to receive Jesus as Savior and the Lord? And so, Lord, none. That's a new thing historically. I'm not putting it down. I'm just saying it, you don't have to do it that way. Nobody did it that way for 1,800 years. When C.S. Lewis became a Christian, by his own testimony, he got into the sidecar of the motorcycle with his brother, Warty, who was driving, and they went off to the zoo. He said, when I got into the sidecar, I was not a Christian. And when I got back from my trip to the zoo, I was. I said, wait a minute. Who prayed with you? Where was the altar call? Guess who harvested C.S. Lewis after a long season of gardening by a lot of people, including J.R.R. Tolkien? Who harvested him? The Holy Spirit harvested him. And that's why you see it all through the Gospels and the book of Acts. Let me tell you a secret. I mentioned a few moments ago that uh, I haven't prayed with anybody to receive Christ in 30 years, and you think, oh, what a loser, right? I wonder if some of you have heard of a guy named um, J. Warner Wallace. Is this name familiar to any of you? A couple of you guys know, and some of you folks over here. Jim Wallace was a, a storied cold case murder detective in Torrance PD in the Los Angeles County. Five of the cases that he solved, cold cases, these are th murders that happened 20, 
25, 30 years ago, and the files are gathering dust. He pulls them out, and he catches the bad guy. He's good. Five of his cases were on a Dateline or whatever they call that show, you know, where they do the murder mysteries and stuff. They called him the evidence whisperer. Jim knew how to use evidence, and he knew how to catch bad guys. He never lost a case that went to trial. But J. Warner Wallace was an atheist. And he got challenged to consider Christianity, and so he took his, his substantial detective skills, and he applied them to the Gospels. And he came to the conclusion, these are reliable eyewitness testimonies, and Jesus rose from the dead, and he became a Christian. And then he started talking about it, and he began defending it, and he became a Christian apologist. Then he wrote about it, and he became a best-selling Christian author, and his first book was Cold Case Christianity. You ought to get it. And his second one was God's Crime Scene, and his third one was Forensic Faith, and his fourth one was uh, Person of Interest, just came out last year. Okay. This guy is the absolute number one best speaker and communicator on Christian apologetics I have ever heard in my life, and I've heard them all. Here's something you don't know about J. Warner Wallace, though. Jim Wallace was in my garden when he was an atheist. He was listening to my show. He was using our materials. Uh, John Noyce, who was on our team, spoke yesterday over the weekend for us. John Noyce was an atheist. Now he's on our team as a, an apologist. Actually, he's teaching this material in that church this morning. He was in my garden when he was an atheist. Abdul Murray, the former Muslim attorney in Detroit, who became a Christian and a follower of Christ and then an apologist and started writing books and has his own organization now. Abdu Murray was in my garden when he was still a Muslim. You know what happened? Somebody went into my garden and they harvested my fruit. Get out of my garden. Think that's my attitude? No, why not? John 4, Jesus says, the one who reaps and the one who sows, we rejoice together. We're all on the same team. We're doing different jobs. And my job is a gardener. And by the way, since the harvest is easy when the fruit is ripe, the hard work is in the gardening, and that's why I think most of you are probably gardeners. But you have never been taught to garden. All you've been given is harvesting tools. And you don't want to use them because you don't know how to use them, and it spooks you. And in my view, the tool isn't even necessary. You can use it if you want. Some of you are really into it, and that's what you do. You're harvesters. In fact, probably if you're a harvester, you're annoyed at what I'm saying right now. It really bugs you. But most of you are not annoyed. You're going, OMG. That would be, oh my gosh, right? That's the Christian version. I never heard this before. I've never thought of it before. It's all over the New Testament in practice. And this approach has transformed me. Now, some people say, well, when, when, when do you get to the gospel? Coco in your system. I say, I get to the gospel whenever I want. Oh, that's kind of cheeky. Like, yeah, well, so what? The point is, I'm not artificially forced to put the gospel into a presentation where it does not fit in the communication. How often did Jesus get to the gospel? Not very often. The gospel is the good news. Jesus didn't focus so much on the good news. What did he focus on? the bad news. You got people say, oh, I love the Sermon on the Mount. It's like the greatest moral teaching. Yeah, but did you ever read it? Oh, yeah, everything's blessed. 
Well, the, yeah, those who are suffering. And then Jesus says, and by the way, you want to get in the kingdom? You've got to be holier than the holiest people you know. You've got to be better than them. Is that good news or bad news? And he says, we're not taking the law away. That's still sticking, man. That's over you. Oh, really? Do not murder. Oh, I didn't do that. Did you ever call your brother a fool? Yeah, you're going to hell. That's Jesus. Don't commit adultery. Didn't do that. Did you ever think about it? Guys, you're going to hell. That's Jesus. That is not good news. Jesus didn't get to the gospel in every conversation. He gave what was necessary at the moment. And most of the time, in his case, and probably in ours, the bad news is going to be necessary. Especially in our culture when everybody thinks so highly of themselves. And then we tell them how wonderful God thinks they are. That's why he loves them so much. Now, I think the love of God is totally transforming. But I'll just tell you something. You want to rock your boat a little bit, you can do whatever you want with this. That the gospel is preached 13 times and to groups or individuals in the book of Acts, and they never mention the love of God a single time. And these were the guys that were trained by Jesus. Do that. Do with that what you want. What I wanted you to do is get off the bench and into play here. And so I'm going to make a promise to you. In the next, what, 20 minutes, <laughs> I'm going to give you a game plan that will allow you to converse with confidence in any situation, no matter how little you know, or how knowledgeable, or aggressive, or even obnoxious the other person has, ha happens to be. You got aggressive, obnoxious people you know that aren't Christian? And they're probably saying, yeah, and I know some Christians that are pretty aggressive and obnoxious too. Well, we're going to end all that. In other words, we're going to make those conversations much more genial, more friendly, okay? That's my promise to you, okay? And, and, and what I'm going to share with you kind of follows a principle that you see in Colossians 4, verse 5 and 6. So just write that down, but I'll tell you what it says. Colossians 4, verse 5 and 6, okay? And here's what Paul says. He says, conduct first, he says, conduct yourself with wisdom towards outsiders, making the most of the opportunity, okay? So first he says, be smart. Then he says, let your speech always be with grace, seasoned as it were with salt. So he says, first be smart. Then he says, be nice. What a concept, right? And then he says, so that you may know how to respond to each person. So he says, be smart, be nice, with respect, gentleness, First Peter, but be tactical. Treat people as individuals. Why? Because they are. You can talk to five atheists, you're going to get five different points of view, even though they share the idea there is no God. In some fashion, they share that idea. But everybody's got their own story, or their own background, their own brokenness, their own hurts, their own pains, their own objections, their own challenges. You do you, after all. That's the emphasis on the radical individuality we have in our culture now. So that's the you you want to discover. You want to you want to tailor your communication and conversation with that 
individual. And that's what this game plan will allow you to do. So let me give you an illustration of how this worked out in one instance. In about two weeks, I'm going to northern Wisconsin. We have some property up there that uh, has been in our family since the uh, early 60s. My grandpa bought it. Um, and uh, he wanted to retire up there. He had been a lumberjack in the northern Northwoods there before uh, the early 20th century. And uh, so I used to going up there as a kid. And now it's I own it. It's fallen to me an inheritance. And I take care of it. We've cleaned it up. But I love to fish. And so we're on a lake. We have other lakes around there. And I, I got a bass boat and a tow vehicle, uh, a couple of them up there that's waiting for me in two weeks. So, uh, so I like to fish. And up there, I especially like to fish for smallmouth bass, OK? And uh, I was out with a local pastor once, and I caught the largest smallmouth bass of my life at the time, and that was four pounds, two ounces. Now, that's a pretty big small if you're next to the neck of the woods, okay? Now, I've got to tell you, since then, I have eight smallmouth bass over five pounds, okay? And one was 5'13". If that sucker would have eaten one more crawdad before it bit my bait, I would have had my six-pounder, but nevertheless, I'm still after that one. I was really happy about this four-pounder, so he took a shot, a picture of that four-pounder. I wanted to digitize so I could put it on the, uh, on the screen at his church while I was preaching the following weekend, and I've been doing that for the last 25 years up there in northern Wisconsin, that same church, maybe 30 years. I'm going to flex my muscles right there, you know, and they ought to understand that kind of thing. My... So I took the film, film, <laughs> F-I-L, it's a develop this, you know, and then, okay. For Gal to make the digital copy. And I noticed that the woman who was taking care of that had this large pentagram hanging from her neck. Now, you guys are probably more familiar with that than most because it's an occultic symbol, or it can be, a five pointed star. And so I asked her, Is that, does that jewelry have religious significance? And she said, uh, Yes, it does. The five points stand for earth, wind, fire, water, and spirit. So the bells are going off in my mind just here, and I'm, and, and, but uh, I, I, I wanted to get more clear on this, and I said, I'm curious if it has religious significance for you personally, because some people wear a cross, and it's not. It's just jewelry, right? And she said, yes, I'm a pagan. Now, I'm a trained professional. I'm just taking it in stride, but my wife is standing next to me, and when she hears this girl call herself a pagan, my wife starts laughing. Then she catches herself and says, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to be rude, but I never heard anybody admit it before. <laughs> She'd only hear girl, the word pagan when her girlfriends would call their kids and say, get in here, you bunch of pagans, you know, that kind of thing. Of course, you know what she's talking about, and she starts to explain her point of view. She's not offended at all, and I realize I'm talking to a witch. And so I just asked her, are you Wiccan? She said, yes, I am. And then she explained that part of her theological belief as in Wicca is that she... Um, they, they respect all life. I said, oh, interesting. That would make you pro-life then on the abortion question, wouldn't it? She said, no, I'm actually pro-choice. Isn't it odd for a witch to be pro-choice given the nature of that belief and everything? She said, well, it is a little bit odd. But then she said this. She said, I know I could never do that referring to abortion. I could never kill a baby. These were her words, not mine. She is identifying abortion with baby killing. Now, we have training at Stand to Reason to demonstrate that abortion kills an innocent human being without proper justification. Baby killing, if you like, but we don't use that language. We don't want to be accused of using loaded rhetoric to make our case when we can make a case without that. We don't need that. But I'm not the one who's calling abortion baby killing. It is the pro-choice person who is acknowledging that abortion kills a baby, which is why she doesn't want to do it. Okay? And I'm listening. 
Why am I listening? Because I'm committed to knowing how to respond to each person. And so when I hear this, it's going to change my conversation. Am I going to talk... Sorry, Lord. I still don't have ju juice. Huh? Oh, do I now? Okay. All right. So, so uh, uh, now I'm going to use not the abortion terminology, but her terminology, what she just justified for the conversation. I'm going to talk about baby killing. All right. She said, I can never kill a baby. And then she gave the reason why. She said, I wouldn't want something bad to come back on me. All right? Now, it's like a karma thing. What goes around comes around, I guess. But it, t it strikes me as an odd reason not to kill babies. I'm not going to kill any babies. You never know what's going to happen to you if you start killing babies. You know? Really? That's your reason? Maybe we should just not kill babies. How about that? Anyway, I didn't pursue that. Instead, you can hear me okay? Okay. I can use it now? Okay, great. Yeah. <laughs> Joking. You have to turn it off. Thank you. He's such an explosive speaker. <laughs> Trying to think where I was at now. Okay, so, so, um, so she, she gives a reason why she wouldn't kill babies. And I, I say to her, well, maybe you wouldn't kill babies. Good. <laughs> but maybe we should stop other people from killing babies. And she says, I think people should have a choice. And I said, what's the choice, by the way, we're talking about now explicitly, the choice to kill babies? And it start, you know, and that's what I asked her. You think people should, you know, uh, have the choice to kill babies? And she said, well, I think all things should be taken into consideration. I said, okay, what would be one thing that you would make it okay to kill a baby in your view? And she said, incest. Okay, now I want you to notice what's happening here. She's just trotting out all of these pro-choice slogans. Okay, but they're not slogans to support choice. They are slogans now to support baby killing. That's the way she put it, not my words, hers. And it's starting to sound a little weird. And she's not hearing it though. And I'll tell you why she's not hearing it, because she's paying attention to the slogans, that's all she's doing. She's not thinking through this. She's just tossing the slogans out. And listen, this is a good lesson here. You're going to encounter this all the time. You're engaged people, they're going to bang, bang, bang you with slogan after slogan after slogan after slogan. Something they have not thought through. And by the way, that's true on both sides of the aisle. Christians do it all the time. It's just a battle of slogans. Okay. So I said, well, let me see if I understand your view. If I had a two-year-old that was standing next to me who had been conceived by incest, her requirement, then I should be allowed to kill this child. Is that right? Now, do you think that's a fair application of her view? Yeah, I think so. I'm just following it out, right? And if it wasn't, she has an opportunity to correct me, right? But she didn't correct me because it was, it was not an unfair application. It was a fair application, and it stopped her in her tracks. Now, at this point, I think I knew what happened there. And that is a stone went in her shoe. Okay, 
because that now is my goal in conversation. My goal isn't to get them to sign in the dotted line. My goal is to just get them thinking. And when I address a secular audience at a university, I'm going to be at University of Kentucky in a couple of months, in September actually, um, and, and uh, I'm going to start out the way I always start out. And I tell them I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth is what I say, an ancient teacher, Jesus of Nazareth. And then I, I, I give a little introduction, then I say I'm not here to convert you. That's not my goal. All I want to do is put a stone in your shoe. You ever had a stone in your shoe? It's not the end of the world, but it's kind of annoying, right? You've got to deal with it. That's what I want to do with you. I want to annoy you. And they chuckle like you're chuckling right now because they expect a Christian to annoy them, right? So I say, okay, I'm your guy. But you're going to thank me in the end, I hope, because I, I want you walking out of here with something that I said sticking at you, bugging you, bothering you, that you cannot set aside. I want you to be thinking about Jesus because I think Jesus is worth thinking about. And then I go on with my material. That's my approach. And that is my approach every time I get in a conversation with somebody else. I'm lowering the bar. You see what I'm doing here for you? I'm lowering the bar. I'm saying, don't worry about closing the deal. I want you to garden. And what does gardening look like? Just a little bitty thing. If you can just give them something to think about, fine. If I'm talking to somebody in the airplane and that's all the further I get, okay, I'm fine. I'm a happy camper. No worries. Because I'm not the only player in the game. I'm not the only gardener that God has in the field. It's God's field. We're all working together in different ways to garden so that there could be a harvest, okay? Now, I want you to notice something about that conversation with this young lady. Oh, I, what, what I didn't say to you, I mean, there's just a little bit more. And so I think that, and she's pausing, and I said, what about this two-year-old? Remember that? So she's thinking about it now. Maybe that's when the stone went in her shoe. I don't know. It's hard to tell sometimes with these things. And, and then finally she says about killing the two-year-old, I'd have, mixed, I'd have mixed feelings about that, really? Mixed? No, I didn't say that to her. I guess that's progress. At least they're mixed. You know, I guess the, the glass is half full, not half empty, right? But, um, but the light is growing behind me. Remember, I'm at this little kiosk thing, right, to get my film developed. And uh, I realized that my opportunity as an ambassador for Christ has come to an end. Had I been of a different persuasion, a different perspective about this, I might have said, hey, I haven't got to the gospel. I haven't got to the gospel yet. Sit down and shut up. Maybe you learned something. You know, where was I? You know. But I did not feel artificially forced to shoehorn the gospel in in a conversation where it didn't make any sense. And even if we've been talking more directly about theological matters than ethical matters like abortion, I still wouldn't have done that. I'm just gardening. Now, there are times it's appropriate to bring that in, but I get to judge that with the best judgment I have in the moment when it's time to bring that in. I don't just throw that out there because somebody told me I got to paste it onto every conversation because what's going on when I do that? What do people hear? They hear religious noise, and they do not understand it, and the devil comes and plucks it away. Now, I want you to think about that conversation I had like seven or different, seven or eight different questions that I asked during the conversation. I asked questions to initiate the conversation. I asked questions to uh, um, get more information from her about her convictions. And I, in my notes, I, I it used to say she was doing all the work because I was relaxed. But I realized she wasn't doing any work. 
Neither of us were. We were just having a conversation. There was no lines drawn on the sand. We're not defending turf. We don't have our dukes up or anything like that. And that's the way I want it. I do not want to get in fights with people. I don't want to have arguments with people. I'm tired of that. Here's my rule. If, if I, you, ever, you ever get in a conversation with somebody, you got mad? A spiritual conversation, you got mad? Did you get mad? So have I. Guess what? You lose. Every time you get mad in a conversation, it's over with. What if you don't get mad? You keep your cool, but the other person gets mad at you. Is that going to work? No, if they get mad, you lose too. If anybody gets mad, you lose. By the way, it's a good principle for marriage. <laughs> Harder to apply. And so we want to try to avoid, if possible, you can't always avoid it. Sometimes it's not on us, it's on them. We want to keep from them getting angry. Okay, anybody getting angry. Okay, um, and so that's the way I want my conversations. All right, now... Um, that's the power, by the way, of the tactical approach. And it stands to reason, you find in the book too, did I already mention the book? We have a signal, this is, the, all this material is in a book that I wrote called Tactics, a game plan for discussing your Christian convictions. I don't have any here to sell to you. You can go to Amazon, you'll get it tomorrow. And it's probably cheaper than I'd sell it to you, right? Uh, but uh, but uh, it's all there. And we've got different tactics. They have names like uh, Taking the Roof Off and Just the Facts, Ma'am, and Road Scholar, and What a Friend We Have in Jesus, and Inside Out. And these are all maneuvers you can learn to use in conversations that are going to help you. But the game plan is actually a very particular thing. All right? It, it, it's, a, uh, um, it, it, it's a tactic that is the simple tactic, simplest tactic imaginable to use to stop a challenger in their tracks, to turn the tables, and to get them thinking. And the tactic has a name, and the name of the tactic is Columbo. As in the infamous Lieutenant Columbo of TV fame. Now, who in this room has no idea of who I'm talking about? Okay, who knows who I'm talking about? Yeah, see, all you old people. All right? Because he's the number one TV icon of all time. He even beat Lucy, right? Who's Lucy? I know what you're thinking. Okay. He shows up at the crime scene. He's a homicide detective. He's wearing a trench coat like this. It looks like he slept in it. I got mine to Salvation Army. My wife says, whenever you buy something at Salvation Army, you always check the pockets because you never know what you're going to find. Wait a minute. What's this? Oh, my goodness. Look at that. <laughs> Columbo's got a cigar, right? This is not a real cigar, just saying, all right, pastor, it's plastic. it's plastic. I actually hate cigars. When I get a real cigar, I always destroy it by fire. <laughs> all the way down, I don't want anybody to stumble, you know what I'm saying? Okay, he's also got a pad of paper, but he can't use the pad of paper. Why can't he use his pad of paper? He doesn't have a pen. Actually, what he doesn't have is a pencil. He's always asking for a pencil. What's up with that? I don't know. Maybe they didn't invent pens back then. But so he's not prepared. And he's walking around, scratching his head, rubbing his, you know, muttering to himself. And this guy doesn't look like he can think his way out of a wet paper bag. I mean, this guy is stupid, but he's stupid like a fox. Because at some point, he's got a plan, right? At some point, he's going to pause and he's going to rub his furrowed brow like he's deep in painful thought. And then he's going to say something like this. I don't know. There's something about this thing that bothers me. <laughs> Do you mind if I ask you a question? You know how he does that, right? He asks the question, gets the answer. You're very intelligent. Thank you. 
One more ting. Right? Then he one more tings him to death. Question after question after question. Pretty soon they get upset at me. So I'm, I'm sorry. It's because I'm asking all these questions, but I can't help it. It's a habit. And this is a habit you need to get into. The key to the Colombo tactic is that the Christian goes on the offensive in an inoffensive way with carefully selected questions to advance the conversation. I'll say that again. The key to the tactic is that you go on the offensive in an inoffensive way, just like Colombo, with carefully selected questions to move your conversation forward. Okay, now I'm very short on time here, so I'm just going to give you a skeleton look at the first two steps of the game plan. There are three steps. I'm going to get to the third step later. It's the first two steps of the basic game plan, and I'm going to go into much more detail later. Okay, and um, I'm also going to get, tell you some stories about how just these two simple steps really radically made a difference in someone's life, or God used them, let's put it that way. And I wasn't even trying in one of those cases with the waitress in Seattle, okay? And in that particular, uh, here, let me just sketch out the game plan, okay, for you. There are two steps I'm going to give you, okay? Here's the first step. Now, when I say this is the first step of the game plan, here's what I'm thinking about. I don't want you thinking about the end game. I don't want you thinking about getting to the last page, okay? Signing on the dotted line, closing the deal, leading them to Christ. Do not think about that. It never crosses my mind. I want you to think, I don't want you to think of the objections that are going to come up or questions or challenges that maybe you can't answer. Don't, you don't have to worry about that. Here's the only thing I want you to think about when you find yourself in a situation where you think you might like to have a imp spiritual impact. You're at a restaurant, there's a waitress, you got a few moments. What do you do? You're sitting on the airplane next to somebody, what do you do? You're talking to a friend, it's moving towards spiritual things, what do you do? They're advancing their own spiritual project in your face, what do you do? This is what you do. Number one, gather information. That's it. First step. Get the lay of the land. Get some intel. Figure out what you're up against. Find out where the person is at so you know how to respond to each person. Remember Paul in Colossians 4. That's all you got to worry about. Now, I'm going to give you a model question to do that. And I'll do the same thing with the second step. So you not only have the steps, but you also have a model question that you can use. And these are model questions. You can morph them into different variations. But this is the core idea. When people start coming at you with their own thing or whatever, or even when you're just trying to initiate a conversation, here is the model question for gathering more information. And that question is, what do you mean by that? Go ahead and write that down. What do you mean by that? That's how I started the conversation with the witch in Wisconsin. There was the pentagram. I know what it meant. I wanted her to tell me. I suspected what it meant, especially because it was really big and it was really like a statement. What do you mean by that thing you're wearing on your neck? Now, I didn't use those words. I used other words, but that's what I was after, right? Somebody comes at you with a, with a challenge, you know. All, all, you, know you, you see the coexist stickers, right? They're probably all over this neighborhood, you know. Okay, all these religions, they're very fine. They all, really, what's the coexist? What does this mean? What do you mean by that? Oh, because all these religions, these are all great. They all lead to God. Oh, really? So, wait, wait. The Hindus believe in an impersonal God, and the Jews believe in a personal God. You're saying both those religions lead to God? Yeah, you're getting clarification, right? That's all this is. What do you mean by that? 
Um, okay, which God do they end up at then? They have two different gods, right? Which God? The same God. Well, wait a minute. One's personal, the other one's not personal. Now what? Now you notice what I'm doing here. I'm asking a question for clarification. It's a variation of what do you mean by that? It's all it is. It's the, every time I ask a question, guess who gets to talk next? They do. The pressure's not on me. I'm just curious about your view. That's all. But I'm also cagey. I'm trying to be shrewd, like Jesus said to be. Gentle as doves, shrewd as serpents. Because now they're thinking, wait a minute, if they all lead to God, which, which God do they? They can't both lead to the same God because it isn't the same God. That's what I want them to be thinking. What do I call that? I call that a stone in the shoe. Now, you might have different questions you ask, or maybe you don't see this problem, but you can still draw the person out with that question. And when they answer your question with clarification, there may be more ambiguities, ask more. Tell me more, tell me more, tell me more. I want to understand you. There's two reasons you want to do that. One, so that you understand them. Secondly, so that they understand them. People sloganize. They've not thought about what they say they believe. So when you ask them what are the, you mean by that, you, you, you know, you, you're going to hit silence, dead air. I call it the Simon and Garfunkel moment. Remember those guys? 1966, Sounds of Silence. Remember that? They're still alive. They're really old. Almost unrecognizable. But their music from the past is really good. Sounds of Silence, because they haven't thought about it. Okay, so that's your first step. And i got to move here because we're almost out of time. And some people are already leaving, so the rule is it's better for the speaker to leave before the audience does. Okay, so <laughs> your first step is gather information. You may not get any further than that. And I'll tell you about the waitress in Seattle when I didn't get any further than that, but it didn't matter. God used it anyway. Okay. And, and, and you're going to get, if you get nothing else, you're going to get an education about how people think. And that's really valuable. Okay. But there's a second step. In the first step, they're telling you what they believe or what they think or what their view is. In the next step, once you're clear on that, you want to know why they believe the view they have. You get the what and the why. This is the second step. And that's why the question now is going to be, how did you come to that conclusion? What are your reasons for that? I'm curious. I'm trying to understand your view. Whatever. You're mellow. You're relaxed. There's no pressure on you. You are in the shallow end of the pool. You're ankle deep in water. This is easy. Questions keep you safe. Write that down. Questions keep you safe. Because when you're asking questions, you're not preaching. When you're preaching, you're given a point of view. And when you're given a point of view, you're vulnerable. They're going to go after it. Especially in an aggressive culture. You don't give a point of view, they got nothing to go after. You ask questions, what are they going to say? And frankly, most people are flattered because you're taking an interest in them. They think they're evangelizing you. What, what's happening? You're getting an education. And you may not be able to go any further with that. That's all right. Over time, you will be able to. There's a third step. I'll talk about it this afternoon. But these two steps are going to be, make you, uh, you, listen, trust me, you will not believe how effective you can be just by having a somewhat passive role with gathering information, asking the reasons for their view. What do you mean by that? How did you come to that conclusion? That's your toolbox. Easy. Gardening. And I fulfilled my promise to you, by the way. Because I said I'd give you a game plan that allow you to converse with confidence in any situation, no matter how little you know 
or how knowledgeable or aggressively and obnoxious the other person happens to be. And I've just done it. Two steps, two questions. Gather information. What do you mean by that? Find out the reasons why they believe what they believe. I call it reversing the burden of proof. And the question is, how did you come to that conclusion? There it is. It's easy. And you will be amazed when you begin doing that, how God will use it. By the way, just a little aside, if you don't do it, it don't work. If you don't only remember one thing from this morning, you find yourself in a, remember, remember this, you find yourself in a tough spot, in a conversation with something, things are getting awkward, difficult, you don't know what to do, take a tip from Lieutenant Colombo and always ask questions. Father, thank you for this great time, however brief it was with these sensational Christians in a tough, challenging circumstance. Thank you for them and for this church and this light on the hill. And I pray, Father, you would work in their lives so they can be brighter lights, gardening more effectively so that your harvest will be richer for Christ's sake and for the kingdom's sake.